Well, as we enter into our teaching time, I want to begin uh, our teaching time by first uh, giving you an apology. I want to make an apology to, to all of you. And, and here's the apology. I ask you to forgive me for not talking enough about money. Now, some of you are like, no, don't, don't sweat it. You don't need to apologize at all. In fact, you don't need to even talk about money. We're good. You know, you know uh, no, no apology needed. Uh, but seriously, I, you know, I, I, I kind of thought I, I talked about money. You know, I don't talk about money all the time. Uh, if you've listened to me preach for uh, some time, been a part of this, this congregation here, then you know I don't talk about money uh, a whole lot. But I did, th- I did think I talked about it more than, than what I did. And intermittently, I'll talk about it. Uh, the subject comes up in a certain passage that we're working through and talking about you know, money and, and stuff and possessions and all of those things and kind of intermittently work it into to a sermon because it's there and it's in the text. But I was looking back over my notes and I realized that over the last 10 years, I have preached a total of two sermon series on money and stewardship. Over the course of 10 years, I've preached two sermon series, and both of them were four weeks in length. I think, well, actually, one was five weeks in length. So nine weeks total. Again, I've preached more than that and intermittently, but two sermon series over the last 10 years. And so I, I'm, I'm sorry about not talking more about money because I know how much Jesus talked about money. One sixth of every recorded statement and almost one third of all of his parables talk about money. And I have not talked about something that Jesus talked a lot about. Now, to be honest, a lot of preachers don't like talking about money. Surveys say that we'd rather preach a sermon on uh, on hell than we would preach a sermon on money. And I've already kind of, I haven't really talked about politics today, but praying over that. And probably in these days, it's probably more, uh, more fun to talk about money than it is politics too and what's going on in our country, although that needs to be preached on too. But Jesus talked about money a lot. Now, when he talked about money, he did so with, with a greater purpose in mind and pointing people to, to kingdom principles. But that's kind of really part of my point. Jesus talked a lot about money because he knew that the use of money was one of the clearest indications of the place of the kingdom in a person's heart. Because the heart is always found wherever the treasure is put. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And just a few verses later, Jesus says this in verse 24, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and, what's he say there? Money. He does not say you cannot serve both God and Satan, although he implies that throughout Scripture. But here he says you cannot serve both God and money because he knew that money has the greatest potential to become our God substitute. He wasn't trying to get money out of people's pockets. What Jesus was trying to do is get idols out of people's hearts because his mission was not to make money. His mission was to make and still is to make disciples. And that's the mission of the church, to make and to grow followers of Jesus Christ. And when we look at the teachings of Jesus, it's clear that any discussion on making and growing disciples of Jesus Christ has to include the subject of money. 
And so in some ways, while I am joking half, I'm, I'm kind of doing it tongue in cheek, I'm also very serious. I apologize for not talking to you more about money. And so for the next few weeks, that's exactly what we're going to do. And it's really not going to be a series. I mean, it is. It's a, it's a series on, on, on uh, stewardship, but it's more than that. Really, it's a series on discipleship. Because disciples are called to reshape their values and realign their priorities to embody the economic principles of a new kingdom. We're called to, to an, into a new dominion. We have a new master now, and that's why we practice what we're going to call kingdom economics. And so each week I'm going to give you a basic principle of understanding economy from a kingdom perspective. And I'm not talking about the nation's economy or the world's economy. I'm talking about your economy and my economy. And this is kingdom econo- economics. I may struggle with that. Kingdom economics 101. Here's, here's 101 in kingdom economics. God owns it all. God owns it all. To understand anything about money from a kingdom perspective, you have to start right here. The Bible makes nothing more clear than God's absolute right to all things. Listen to what David says in Psalm chapter 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Listen to Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Most of all, listen to God, who spoke to his servant Job in Job 41, 11, and said, Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. God also says this in Psalm chapter 50, verses 9 through 12. He says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains, and the insects in the fields are mine. God says, I don't just own the cows, I own the bugs too. The bugs are mine. He goes on to say, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine, and all that is in it. Now, all of us who have been or are parents of young children know that one of the very first words a child learns is the word mine. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, what somebody came out with. I don't even know how long ago, and it's kind of been adapted a little bit, and you can find it anywhere, but it's called the toddler rules. Toddler rules, and, and I think it fits in perfectly with what we're talking about. And so the toddler rules go like this. If I like it, it's mine. If it's in my hand, it's mine. If I can take it from you, it's mine. If I had it a little while ago, it's mine. If it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. If I'm doing or building something, all the pieces are mine. If it looks just like mine, it's mine. If I saw it first, it's mine. If you're playing with something and you put it down, it automatically becomes mine. However, if it's broken, it is yours. <laughs> now, the thing is, we, we did not teach them that word, mine. We taught them to say words like mommy and daddy and grandma and grandpa or nana and papa or whatever you call your, your, your grandparents. They call your grandparents. They, they learned how to say mine, however, all on their own. And so even from the earliest of ages, there is a battle 
to decide who the owner is. And God asserts that he has a claim on everything. In fact, the verse, very first verse of the Bible basically says, God made it, so it's not yours. I like how one preacher put this subject. He said, this is a top button issue. I, I like that. It's a top button issue. In other words, like when you're buttoning your shirt, right? You start with the top button. If you get the top button wrong, every other button is going to be out of alignment. And so in other words, if you don't get this, this issue of ownership right, that God owns it all, then every single thing you believe about stewardship subsequently is going to be wrong. This is a top button issue. This is the, this is the foundational issue. God owns it all. Now here's the reality. I'm pretty sure that I haven't said anything yet that's really controversial or that you wouldn't agree with or that you'd get real upset about. I'm probably not talking, uh, you know, talking about something that, that somebody's going to come up to me, you know, give me a call later or send me an email or on services on, on Sunday when we gather together. If I get through preaching this, somebody's going to come up to me and, and give me a talking to and argue with me about the fact that God owns everything. On a surface level, we all agree with that. And maybe that's part of the problem because we keep it on a surface level. And so we're going to get kind of crazy today and we're going to dig a little deeper because I think there's some powerful implications of Kingdom Economics 101. And here's the first thing I think is an implication. I think when we talk about implications from God owning it all, the first is this. It means that we are not self-sufficient beings. We are not self-sufficient beings. And that's important because one of the dangers of saying mine a lot is that it fosters the myth of, of autonomy and self-reliance and self-sufficiency. When I say the name Jimmy Stewart, uh, I'm sure a lot of you are probably like, who? Uh, for those of you who do know the name, you probably think of Jimmy Stewart uh, in, in the movie It's a Wonderful Life. But there's another classic movie that he was in called... <coughs> excuse me, called Shenandoah. And in the movie, if you've seen it, if you haven't, I'm going to explain it to you, I'll give you kind of a clip notes version. In the movie, uh, Stewart is a father of a family living in Virginia um, in, in, in the time of the Civil War in America. And, and Stewart's wife had actually passed away earlier, and so he's raising his family on his own. And He's not really much of a church-going man, but he, he made a deathbed promise to his wife that he would uh, raise their children up to be good Christians, take them to church and, and pray at dinner time, do things like that. And so Stuart reluctantly took them to church and, and, and gathered them for a blessing at every meal. And there's one scene where Stuart and his six sons and his daughter and one of his son's wives, so his daughter-in-law, we're seated around an abundantly filled table, and he prays this prayer. Lord, we cleared this land. We plowed it, sowed it, and harvested it. We cooked the harvest. It wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be eating it if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We worked dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel, but we thank you just the same anyway, Lord, for this food we're about to eat. Amen. You see, what happens when God gives us, gives us the capacity to work and to earn, is it quickly becomes our, our propensity to take credit. 
And God knows this about our hearts. And so, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, when he's preparing Israel to cross the Jordan River to go into the promised land, he says to them, it's a good land and you can do well in this land. It's a very, you can be very prosperous in this land, but he prepares them. And he says in verses 17 and 18, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. You see, the Bible completely rejects the idea that any of us have self-sufficient and self-sustaining ability to exist independent the benevolence of God. All that we have and all that we are comes from him, is derived from him. And when we get this, we can't help but worship. When we get this, we cannot help but worship. The very last verse, or the very last chapter of the book of Psalms says this in Psalm 150, verse 6. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. If you can breathe at all, you should be thanking God because that's his air you're breathing. But if you're like me, you never really think about that. You know, we thank God for the moments that take our breath away. But how often do we stop to thank God that we can actually breathe? Because it really is an amazing thing. If you've ever stopped or studied, uh, stopped to think about it, studied what, what's going on, this oxygen comes into our lungs and through an incredibly complicated physiological process, that air is turned into something that our blood can then take to other parts of our body to give our body fuel and energy. But it also produces an, uh, a dangerous toxin called carbon dioxide that has to be expelled from our body. And so our lungs just naturally, because God created them this way, our lungs just naturally get that carbon dioxide out of our bodies and take in more oxygen. And we do this 20,000 times a day. And it's God's air. It's his breath in our lungs. And so we pour out our praise. And one day God will say, that's enough. No more of my air. And you will take your last breath. And the myth that you are an independent creature will be clearly exposed. And so the Psalms end by saying, if you can breathe, praise God. When we get this, we cannot help but worship. But because we far too often don't get this, we cannot help but worry. We worry because we think we're the owners of it all. We worry about what's mine and how it's you know, threatened by things that I can't control. But we will never be free of worry until we become convicted and convinced that God owns it all. And that he is a good God, a benevolent God who has abundance and will keep his promise to provide for us. But that also means agreeing with God's distribution of what he owns. And so here's the second implication of Kingdom Economics 101. Don't resent or resist what God wants to do with what's his. Don't resist or resent what God wants to do with what's his. Have you ever noticed how it's often more easy to weep with those who weep than it is to, more, or to, to rejoice 
with those who rejoice, especially if they're rejoicing about something they have that I don't have. You see, in reality, envy isn't really our problem with other people. Envy is our problem with God. We're envious because we don't approve of how God has distributed what is his. I remember something my dad, it's always stuck with me, something my dad used to say to me. He said, there's always going to be somebody who has more than you, and there's always going to be somebody who has less than you. And in essence, I, I think what he was doing was, was, was trying to teach me not to look around and try to figure out who's got less than me and who's got more than me and where I rank on the scale, but, but to be grateful for what I do have. Because if I have times of plenty, there's always somebody who has more and somebody who has less. And if I have times of want, there's always somebody who has more and who has less. And so right where I am, I need to be thankful for what I have. Because when you understand that God owns it all, then a spirit of resentment gets replaced by a spirit of contentment. And you start to be more grateful for what you do have. And you start to be more thoughtful about why you have it in the first place. I mean, why does God let you have, why does God let me have this much of what's his? Certainly it's not so that we can hoard it. Because God doesn't give you anything of his to hoard. But rather, God blesses you so that you can bless other people. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, <clears throat> verse 11. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous <clears throat> on every occasion. And through us, your generosity re will result in thanksgiving to God. God blesses us so that we can in turn bless other people so that other people can then in turn come to give praise and thanks to him. Kingdom people understand that God blesses our work so that we can bless God's work, so that we can partner with the work that God is doing around us and all around the world. And when we understand that, we don't resent that we have to do it. We rejoice that we get to do it. I heard a story about some American Christians who had gone over to South Korea to visit some churches over there, and a missionary took them out into the country to you know, kind of visit with some people and some churches, and they saw a strange sight as they were out there. <clears throat> there was an old man, excuse me, behind the handles of an old crude plow, and in front, instead of an ox or another animal, Pulling, it was a young man with the straps around his shoulders, and he was the one pulling the plow. And the Americans kind of wondered what was going on. They asked the missionary about it, and the missionary explained <clears throat> that the church was raising money, had, had previously raised money to build a new building. And so this family sold their ox so that they could give something to the church. They sold their ox so that they could give the money from that ox to the church. And so now, instead of an ox, this young man was the one pulling the plow. And the Americans re <clears throat> responded by saying, wow, you know, what a sacrifice that family has made. And the missionary corrected them and said, they don't see it <clears throat> as a sacrifice. They're thankful that they had an ox to give. Because when you start to understand that God owns it all, 
you stop thinking, now how much of my money should I give? And you start thinking, how much of God's money should I keep? Because here's the third implication. We don't give to God, we return to God. Let me try and explain the difference. Suppose I come to you and I say, you know what, Um, my lawnmower is in bad shape and so I need to get a new lawnmower, but it, it... you know, they're expensive and, you know, and I don't want to buy something and regret I bought it. And so can I borrow your lawnmower for just a couple days, kind of try it out, see if I like it, see if that's something I might want and, um, and uh, you know, just, just for a couple days. And so you say, sure, and, and let me borrow it. So I take it home and I use it for a couple of days. And in a couple of days, after a couple of days, I call you up and I say, you know what, um, Marcy and I, my wife, Marcy and I were talking and we, we just really appreciate you and, and what a kind-hearted person you are. And, you know, we, we just appreciate how, how graceful you've been to us. And so we wanted to do something nice and, um, and, and, and thoughtful for you. And so if you're going to be home tomorrow, Marcy and I would like to come by your house and give you a lawnmower. Now, what's my problem? My problem is that I'm not giving you a lawnmower I'm returning your lawnmower to you, right? I mean, duh. I mean, can you really give something to somebody that never left their possession in the first place? You see, that was the principal point behind the practice in the Bible called tithing. Tithe really just means 10th or 10%. And the law of Moses you know, talks a lot about tithing, but really it goes before uh, the law of Moses. Abraham tithed, and, and it was all, all it was was, was giving, well, should I say returning, 10% to God to let God know that you understand that he owns 100% of it. You're giving God 10% off the top as a way to show God, I recognize you own 100% of it. And that's why tithing in the Bible is never treated as an act of generosity. It's always treated as an act of obedience. It's considered an act of obedience. The Bible never says give the tithe. The Bible says bring the tithe. Because over and over in the Bible, you see this phrase, the tithe belongs to the Lord. You're not giving it to him. The tithe already belongs to him. You're returning it. To him. That's why in Malachi chapter 8, verse 8, probably a scripture that uh, many of you have heard before, God says, You are robbing me. You are robbing me. Now, how can you rob God? Same question that people then ask. How can you rob God? Here's what God says You're keeping my tithe. It belongs to me. You're keeping it. You're not giving it. You're not even returning it. And it belongs to me. Again, it's not about giving God 10%, it's about returning. 10% to let God know that you understand that he owns 100%. So for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, God says, be sure to set aside a tenth. And then he goes on to talk about your, your wine and your oil and your grain and your livestock, giving 10% of all of those things. Why? He says in verse 23, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. Now, Inevitably, when preachers start preaching about tithing, there's always somebody who says something to the effect of, well, that's in the Old Testament. We live under the New Testament. We don't have to do that anymore. And so stop making me feel guilty for not tithing. First of all, my intention is never to make you feel guilty 
Okay, that's not my intention or my purpose to make you feel guilty, specifically as it relates to how much you give. How much you give is between you and God. But I will say this. I've never understood the logic that thinks that the people under the old law in the Old Testament, people who did not know, now they, they, they expectantly waited for it, but they did not or live under the work of Jesus Christ. How can people under that old law who didn't know anything about the work of Jesus Christ, that they should live by a higher standard than people who do? I've never understood how people can think that the law should motivate you to do more than grace does. And maybe part of the reason why we don't tithe is because we're afraid that if we do, we won't have enough. And yet here's the truth. If your salary, if your income got cut by 10%, I'm not trying to be insensitive about this, but if your income got, 10, got cut by 10%, you would not die. Some of you have been cut by more than that throughout all this pandemic. And if your salary got cut by 10% next week, you would not die. See, really, this is, this is an issue of ownership. And, and look, it's, it's between you and God, and you decide in your heart how you're going to communicate to God that you know that he owns it all. All I'm telling you is that the way the Bible says to do that is by tithing. That's, that's really the, the foundational level of it. And so, like I said, on the surface, everybody agrees that God owns it all. It's when you go deeper that you find out if it's really penetrated the heart or not. Because nothing has the potential to become our God substitute like money. There's a man named Bob Buford, a very successful Christian businessman who wrote a book called Halftime. And it's about the point in his life where he recognized that he wanted the rest of his life to matter more than the first half. And so he went to talk to this strategic business consultant, Christian strategic business consultant, and the guy explained that before he could help Bob set the course for the second half of his life, he needed to know what was absolutely the most important thing in Bob's life. And so he asked Bob to draw a box on a piece of paper. And he said, Bob, I've been listening to you talk for the last couple of hours, and I can't help you unless you answer this one question. We can talk for forever, but I can't help you unless you answer this one question. What's in the box? He said, it's either money or Jesus Christ. You can only put one thing in the box. What's in the box? One symbol, one passion, one focus. Bob had to choose. And when Bob placed that cross in the middle of the box, he felt he was saying to God, I'm yours. From now on, nothing will be as important to me as you. And that was a game-changing day for Bob Buford because it's not really about making money. It's about making disciples. And discipleship starts with the question of ownership because here's Discipleship 101. Jesus owns me. Jesus owns me. That's where life as a disciple starts. I like what one person said. He said, I like to think of it as a, I am pre-owned and I am tree-owned. I like that. 
You are pre-owned, meaning that, that God knit you together in your mother's womb, as Psalm 139 talks about, that he literally made you. But as Christians, we're also tree-owned. Because in our rebellion and sin, when we turned back, turned our back on God, he pursued us in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus went to the cross for our sins. God took the wrath that we deserved and he put it on Jesus. And then he took the righteousness that we did not deserve, Jesus's righteousness, and he put it on us. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, now I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. I am pre-owned and I am tree-owned. And if Jesus owns me, doesn't it follow that he owns everything I have? That's kind of what Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, verse 33. Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. To give up is to surrender. I was convicted of a story I read recently about a guy named Joseph Tsan. Uh, Joseph Tsan was a uh, minister in Romania when it was under communist rule, and he was imprisoned and beaten and pretty, you know, very close to death several times uh, for his faith and his preaching about Jesus uh, there in Romania, and eventually ended up getting exiled from Romania. Although after the wall fell, he was able to come back and and minister there in, in, in his country. Um, but sometime after the wall fell and he was back in, in Romania ministering again, there was a minister that went to visit Joseph there in Romania. And he asked him, Joseph, what do you think of Christianity in America? And Joseph said, I think you American Christians are really about commitment. And the American minister said, well, that's, that's a good thing, right? And Joseph said, well, not exactly. Because commitment is the word you use to replace the word surrender. You like commitment because you stay in control. So you can commit to going to church. You can commit to reading your Bible. You can commit to pray. You can commit to giving your money. You can even commit to things like making your car payments. You can commit to losing weight. You commit to whatever you choose to do. You're in control, but surrender is different. American Christians love commitment because they are still in control. But the key word and what Jesus calls us to is surrender. We are called to surrender as slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, surrender is not when you give up something. Surrender is when you give up everything. And as servants of the king, that's exactly what you and I are called to do, to surrender, to give up everything for him. Because after all, isn't that exactly what our King and our Savior did for us?